Section 17 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 12, American Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Abraham Lincoln, Part 3. It was not the people of the United States who called for the nomination of Lincoln, as in the case of General Jackson. He was not much known outside of Illinois, except as a skillful debater and stump orator. He had filled no high office to bring him before the eyes of the nation, he was not a general covered with military laurels, nor a senator in Congress, nor governor of a large state, nor a cabinet officer. No man had thus far been nominated for president unless he was a military success or was in the line of party promotion. Though a party leader in Illinois, Lincoln was simply a private citizen, with no antecedents which marked him out for such exalted position. But he was available, a man who could be trusted, moderate in his views, a Whig, and yet committed to anti-slavery views, of great logical powers, and well-informed on all the political issues of the day. He was not likely to be rash or impulsive or hasty or to stand in the way of political aspirants. He was eminently a safe man in an approaching crisis with a judicial intellect, and above all a man without enemies, whom few envied and some laughed at for his grotesque humor and awkward manner. He was also modest and unpretending, and had the tact to veil his ambition. In his own state, he was exceedingly popular. It was not strange, therefore, that the Illinois Republican State Convention nominated him as their presidential candidate, to be supported in the larger national convention about to assemble. In May 1860, the memorable National Republican Convention met in Chicago, in an immense building called the Wigwam, to select a candidate for the presidency. Among the prominent Republican leaders were Seward, Chase, Cameron, Dayton, and Bates. The Eastern people supposed that Seward would receive the nomination from his conceited ability, his political experience, his prominence as an anti-slavery Whig, and the prestige of office. But he had enemies and an unconciliatory disposition. It soon became evident that he could not carry all the states. The contest was between Seward, Chase, and Lincoln, and when, on the third ballot, Lincoln received within a vote and a half of the majority. Ohio gave him four votes from Chase, and then delegation after delegation changed its vote for the victor, and amid great enthusiasm, the nomination became unanimous. The election followed, and Lincoln, the Republican, received 180 electoral votes, Breckinridge, the Southern Democrats, 72, Bell of the Union Ticket, the last fragment of the old Whig Party, 39, and Douglas of the Northern Democracy, but 12. The rail splitter became President of the United States and Senator Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, Vice President. It was a victory of ideas. It was the triumph of the North over the South, of the aroused conscience and intelligence of the people against bigotry, arrogance, and wrong. Men and measures in that great contest paled before the grandeur of everlasting principles. It was not for Lincoln that bonfires were kindled and cannons roared and bells were rung and huzzas ascended to the heaven but for the great check given to the slave power, which, since the formation of the Constitution, had dominated the nation. The Republicans did not gain a majority of the popular vote, as the combined opposing tickets cast 930,170 votes more than they. But their vote was much larger than that for any other ticket, and gave him a handsome majority in the Electoral College. Between the election in November 1860 and the following March, when Lincoln took the reins of government, several of the southern states had already seceded from the Union and had organized a government at Montgomery. 
making the excuse of the election of a sectional and minority president they had put into effect the action for which their leaders during several months had been secretly preparing they had seized nearly all the federal forts arsenals dockyards custom houses and post offices within their limits while a large number of the officers of the united states army and navy had resigned and entered into their service on the principle that the authority of the states was paramount to the federal power amid all these preparations for war on the part of the seceding states and the seizure of federal property buchanan was irresolute and perplexed he was doubtless patriotic and honest but he did not know what to do the state of things was much more serious than when south carolina threatened to secede in the time of general jackson the want of firmness and decision on the part of the president has been severely criticized but it seems to me to have been not without excuse in the perplexing conditions of the time while it was certainly fortunate that he did not precipitate the crisis by sending troops to reinforce fort sumter in charleston harbor which was invested and threatened by south carolina troops the contest was inevitable anyway and the management of the war was better in the hands of lincoln than it could have been in those of buchanan with traitors in his cabinet or even after they had left and a new and loyal cabinet was summoned but with an undecided man at the head there was needed a new and stronger government when hostilities should actually break out on the fourth of march eighteen sixty one the inauguration of lincoln took place and well do i remember the ceremony the day was warm and beautiful and nature smiled in mockery of the bloody tragedy which was soon to follow i mingled with the crowd at the eastern portico of the capitol and was so fortunate as to hear and see all that took place the high officials who surrounded the president his own sad and pensive face his awkward but not undignified person arrayed in a faultless suit of black the long address he made the oath of office administered by chief justice taney and the dispersion of the civil and military functionaries to their homes it was not a great pageant but was an impressive gathering society in which the southern element predominated sneered at the tall ruler who had learned so few of its graces and insincerities and took but little note of the thunderclouds in the political atmosphere the distant rumblings which heralded the approaching storm so soon to break with satanic force the inaugural address was not only an earnest appeal for peace but a calm and steadfast announcement of the law-abiding policy of the government and a putting of the responsibility for any bloodshed upon those who should resist the law two brief paragraphs contain the whole the power confided to me will be used to hold occupy and possess the property and places belonging to the government and to collect the duties and imposts but beyond what may be necessary for these objects there will be no invasion no use of force among the people anywhere in your hands my dissatisfied fellow-countrymen and not in mine is the momentous issue of civil war the government will not assail you you have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors this was the original chart of the course which the president followed and his final justification when by use of the power confided to him he had accomplished the complete restoration of the authority of the federal union over all the vast territory which the seceded states had seized and so desperately tried to control lincoln was judicious and fortunate in his cabinet seward the ablest and most experienced statesman of the day accepted the office of secretary of state salmon p chase who had been governor of ohio and united states senator was made secretary of the treasury gideon wells of great executive ability and untiring energy became secretary of the navy simon cameron an influential politician of pennsylvania held the post of secretary of war for a time when he was succeeded by edwin m stanton a man of immense capacity for work 
Montgomery Blair, a noted anti-slavery leader, was made postmaster general. Caleb B. Smith became Secretary of the Interior, and Edward Bates of Missouri, Attorney General. Every one of these cabinet ministers was a strong man and was found to be greater than he had seemed. Jefferson Davis of Mississippi, an old-time Democrat, was elected president of the Southern Confederacy, and Alexander H. Stevens, a prominent Whig of Georgia, vice president. Davis was born in Kentucky in 1808 and was a graduate of West Point. He was a congressman on the outbreak of the Mexican War resigned his seat, entered the army, and distinguished himself, rising to the rank of colonel. He was Secretary of War in President Pierce's cabinet, and Senator from Mississippi on the accession of President Buchanan, a position which he held until the secession of his state. He thus had had considerable military and political experience. He was a man of great ability, but was proud, reserved, and cold, a Democrat by party name, an autocrat in feeling and sentiment a type of the highest Southern culture and exclusive Southern caste. To his friends, and they were many in spite of his reserve, there was a peculiar charm in his social intercourse. He was beloved in his family, and his private life was irreproachable. He selected an able cabinet, among whom were Walker of Alabama, Toombs of Georgia, and Benjamin of Louisiana. The Provisional Congress authorized a regular army of 10,000 men, 100,000 volunteers, and a loan of 15 millions of dollars. But actual hostilities had not as yet commenced. The Confederates, during the close of Buchanan's administration, were not without hopes of a peaceful settlement and recognition of secession, and several conferences had taken place, one overture being made even to the new administration, but of course in vain. The spark which kindled the conflagration, but little more than a month after Lincoln's inauguration, April 12, 1861, was the firing on Fort Sumter and its surrender to the South Carolinians. This aroused both the indignation and the military enthusiasm of the North, which in a single day was, as by a lightning flash, fused in a white heat of patriotism and a desire to avenge the dishonored flag. For the time, all party lines disappeared, and the whole population were united and solid in defense of the Union. Both sides now prepared to fight in good earnest. The sword was drawn, the scabbard thrown away. Both sides were confident of victory. The Southern leaders were under the delusion that the Yankees would not fight and that they cared more for dollars than for their country. Moreover, the Southern states had long been training their young men in the military schools and had for months been collecting materials of war. As Cotton was an acknowledged king, planters calculated on the support of England, which could not do without their bales. Lastly, they knew that the North had been divided against itself and that the Democratic politicians sympathized with them in reference to slavery. The federal leaders, on the other hand, relied on the force of numbers, of wealth, and national prestige. Very few supposed that the contest would be protracted. Seward thought that it would not last over three months, nor did the South think of conquering the North, but supposed it could secure its own independence. It certainly was resolved on making a desperate fight to defend its peculiar institution. As it was generally thought in England that this attempt would succeed, as England had no special love for the Union, and as the Union, and not opposition to slavery, was the rallying cry of the North, England gave to the South its moral support. Lincoln assumed his burden with great modesty, but with a steady firmness and determination, and surprised his cabinet by his force of will. Nicolay and Hay relate an anecdote of great significance. Seward, who occupied the first place in the cabinet, which he deserved on account of his experience and abilities, was not altogether pleased with the slow progress of things, and wrote to Lincoln an extraordinary letter in less than a month after his inauguration, suggesting more active operations, 
with specific memoranda of a proposed policy. Whatever policy we adopt, said he, there must be an energetic prosecution of it. For this purpose, it must be somebody's business to pursue and direct it incessantly. Either the president must do it himself or devolve it on some member of his cabinet. It is not my special province, but I neither seek to evade nor assume responsibility. In brief, it was an intimation. If you feel not equal to the emergency, perhaps you can find a man not a thousand miles away who is equal to it. Lincoln, in his reply, showed transcendent tact. Although an inexperienced local politician, suddenly placed at the head of a great nation, in a tremendous crisis, and surrounded in his own cabinet and in Congress by men of acknowledged expert ability in statecraft, he had his own ideas, but he needed the counsel and help of these men as well. He could not afford to part with the services of a man like Seward, nor would he offend him by any assumption of dignity or resentment at his unasked advice. He good-naturedly replied in substance, The policy laid down in my inaugural met your distinct approval, and it has thus far been exactly followed. As to attending to its prosecution, if this must be done, I must do it, and I wish and suppose I am entitled to have the advice of all the cabinet. After this, no member of the cabinet dared to attempt to usurp any authority which belonged to the elected commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, unless it were Chase at a later time. As the head of the government in whom supreme federal power was invested in time of war, Lincoln was willing and eager to consult his cabinet, but reserved his decisions and assumed all responsibilities. He probably made mistakes, but who could have done better on the whole? The choice of the nation was justified by results. It is not my object in this paper to attempt to compress the political and military history of the United States during the memorable administration of Mr. Lincoln. If one wishes to know the details, he must go to the ten octavo biographical volumes of Lincoln's private secretaries, to the huge and voluminous quarto reports of the government, to the multifarious books on the war and its actors. I can only glance at salient points, and even here I must confine myself to those movements which are intimately connected with the agency and influence of Lincoln himself. It is his life, and not a history of the war, that it is my business to present. Nor has the time come for an impartial and luminous account of the greatest event of modern times. The jealousy and dissensions of generals, the prejudices of the people both north and south, the uncertainty and inconsistency of much of the material published, and the conceit of politicians alike prevent a history which will be satisfactory, no matter how gifted and learned may be the historian. When all the actors of that famous tragedy, both great and small, have passed away, New light will appear, and poetry will add her charms to what is now too hideous a reality, glorious as were the achievements of heroes and statesmen. After the Battle of Bull Run, July 21, 1861, won by the Confederate General Beauregard over General McDowell, against all expectation, to the dismay and indignation of the whole North, the result of overconfidence on the part of Union troops and a wretchedly mismanaged affair, the attention of the federal government was mainly directed to the defense of Washington, which might have fallen into the hands of the enemy had the victors been confident and quick enough to pursue the advantage they had gained. For nothing could exceed the panic at the Capitol after the disastrous defeat of McDowell. The demoralization of the Union forces was awful. Happily, the condition of the Confederate troops was not much better. But the country rallied after the crisis had passed. Lincoln issued his proclamation for 500,000 additional men. Congress authorized as large a loan as was needed. The governors of the various states raised regiment after regiment and sent them to Washington, as the way through Maryland, at first obstructed by local secessionists, was now clear, 
General Butler having entrenched himself at Baltimore. Most fortunately, the governor of Maryland was a Union man, and with the aid of the northern forces, had repressed the rebellious tendency in Maryland, which state afterward remained permanently in the Union and offered no further resistance to the passage of federal troops. Arlington Heights in Virginia, opposite Washington, had already been fortified by General Scott, but additional defenses were made and the capital was out of danger. With the rapid concentration of troops at Washington, the government again assumed the offensive. General George B. McClellan, having distinguished himself in West Virginia, was called to Washington at the recommendation of the best military authorities and entrusted with the command of the Army of the Potomac, and soon after, on the retirement of General Scott, now aged and infirm and unable to mount a horse, McClellan took his place as commander of all the forces in the United States. At the beginning of the rebellion, McClellan was simply a captain, but was regarded as one of the most able and accomplished officers of the Army. His promotion was rapid beyond precedent, but his head was turned by his elevation, and he became arrogant and opinionated, and before long even insulted the president and assumed the airs of a national liberator on whose shoulders was laid the burden of the war. He consequently estranged Congress, offended Scott, became distrusted by the president, and provoked the jealousies of the other generals. But he was popular with the army and his subordinates, and if he offended his superiors, his soldiers were devoted to him, and looked upon him as a second Napoleon. The best thing that can be said of this general is that he was a great organizer, and admirably disciplined for their future encounters the raw troops which were placed under his command. And he was too prudent to risk the lives of his men until his preparations were made, although constantly urged to attempt, if not possibilities, at least what was exceedingly hazardous. It was expected by the President, the Secretary of War, and Congress that he would hasten his preparations and advance upon the enemy, as he had over 100,000 men, and he made grand promises and gave assurances that he would march speedily upon Richmond. But he did not march. Delay succeeded delay, under various pretenses, to the disappointment of the country and the indignation of the responsible government. It was not till April 1862, after five months of inaction, that he was ready to move upon Richmond, and then not according to pre-arranged plans, but by a longer route, by the way of Fortress Monroe, up the peninsula between the York and James Rivers, and not directly across Virginia by Manassas Junction, which had been evacuated in view of his superior forces, the largest army theretofore seen on this continent. It is not for me, utterly ignorant of military matters, to make any criticism of the plan of operations, in which the President and McClellan were at issue, were to censure the General in command for the long delay against the expostulations of the Executive and of Congress. He maintained that his army was not sufficiently drilled or large enough for an immediate advance, that the Confederate forces were greater than his own, and were posted in impregnable positions. He was always calling for reinforcements until his army comprised over 200,000 men, and when at last imperatively commanded to move somewhither, at any rate to move, he left Washington not sufficiently defended, which necessitated the withdrawal of McDowell's corps from him to secure the safety of the capital. Without enumerating or describing the terrible battles on the peninsula and the change of base, which practically was a retreat, and virtually the confession of failure, it may be said in defense or palliation of McClellan that it afterwards took Grant, with still greater forces, and when the Confederates were weakened and demoralized, a year to do what McClellan was expected to do in three months. The war had now been going on for more than a year, without any decisive results so far as the Army of the Potomac was concerned, but on the contrary, with great disasters and bitter humiliations. The most prodigious efforts had been made by the Union troops without success, and thus far the Confederates had the best of it, and were filled with triumph. 
As yet, no Union generals could be compared with Lee or Johnston or Longstreet or Stonewall Jackson, while the men under their command were quite equal to the northern soldiers in bravery and discipline. End of section 17